We have been spending our time in Jonah as a church. So if you do have your Bibles here and you've been with us, I know you placed the bookmark in there, so you're gonna go straight away. Otherwise, if you're joining us for the first time, there's no shame, just find the contents page. We're gonna dive in pretty soon, right from the beginning. And we've been learning over the last three weeks, just by the way, if you've missed the last three weeks, I know Craig has just knocked it out the park the last two weeks as well. And God has been speaking to us mightily through this book. And we've been discovering and learning that the book is not about the whales, not about the fish, despite what all the children's book story covers tell us. There's so much more than what God is saying to us. And He's speaking powerfully to us as a church. And I really know that there's something shifting within us as we hear His Word in this. And today what what we're gonna talk about, we're gonna talk about the fact that sometimes we as God's people become quite picky and choosy with regards to which characteristics of God we hold on to and which we choose to ignore. And as a result, that is one of the many reasons why sometimes our lives can be so unchanged. And we're gonna have a look at some of God's character and attributes that maybe you're afraid to look at, you're afraid to be aware of, the kind of verses that you don't stick on your Facebook page, you don't stick on your WhatsApp group, uh, but yet speak so powerfully about who our God is and how that does lead us into some deeper transformation and I believe a deeper experience of His grace and His love. So I said, we're gonna dive straight in. So come with me, Jonah chapter three, verse one. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so this brings us a full circle all the way back to Jonah chapter one, verses one, where the word of God came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And I want to remind you the context into which God is speaking. The Syrians were this incredible empire and they were just this machine that devoured nations with brutality and with force and with violence. And they were actually brilliant. People today still go and they study the tactics of the generals of the Assyrians because they were able just to look at the, 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 the landscape, look at the, the, what was required in battle, and they were always able to come out winning. But not only were they brilliant, they were brutal. And so the Assyrians were known for, for example, they would take the leaders of a city they had just captured and they would skin them alive in full view of everybody else. They would also, if there was a siege on a city and if some kind of soldiers fell over, they would take these soldiers and they would impale them in full view of the opposing army. And so the idea was, here's you coming against the Assyrians, but there's your friend impaled on a spear. And the whole message was, look at the might and the power of Assyria. And Jonah gets asked to go speak to them. Now, if that's not enough, not only is this kind of history for Jonah like it is for us, not only is this happening to someone else, the Syrians came in and out of the 12 tribes of Israel and Judah, the Assyrians destroyed 10 of them with incredible force and brutality and cruelty. One of the things they did was to eliminate an entire people group was that they didn't just kill them off, but they also didn't keep them in prison of war camps. They just made them interbreed with all the other nations of the world until eventually that line was bred out. 
And in that way, they were saying, you do not exist. And the Assyrians had done that to Jonah's people. So we shouldn't be surprised when God said, go this way, Jonah went that way. And in a whole series of events, eventually Jonah finds himself in the confines of the belly of a beast. And there he experiences God's severe mercy. Where God brought Jonah to the end of himself. And Jonah realized for the first time just how present God was in that moment. And without knowing that things were turned around for him, Jonah repents and, and Jonah decides in his heart that God was right and he experiences God's grace and might. And God causes this fish to vomit Jonah up onto the land. And this is where we arrive at Jonah chapter three, going to proclaim this message. I mentioned a few weeks ago when we introduced this book, that for so many people, maybe for some of you here, and most definitely for some of your friends, is, is they look at the headlines. They look at the news. They look at the violence. They look what's happening on the face of the earth. They look at what's happened through the pages of history. And they look at all the cruelty and the pain and the bitterness. And they say, for that reason, God does not exist. And one of the many things we're learning through this book is that God, we see God in this book, He's overlooking planet Earth and He sees the Assyrians. He sees their violence. He sees their cruelty. And God steps in. And in many ways, the book of Jonah is how God steps into violence, how God steps in to bring a redemption into that space. So that's gonna be further unpacked both this week and the next week. But to carry on reading from verse three, Jonah this time obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. We know that now. A visit required three days. And on the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now in Hebrew, that sermon is five words long. Some of you are like, Stephen, I think you should learn the art of a five word sermon. But here's the conundrum for us. You and I growing up in church, especially in kind of the modern church in the modern world, we love the God of love. We think that makes God look good. We think that makes us look good. And whenever there's a question about God, whenever people are concerned, for most of us, the go-to point is, no, 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 you, you're missing it. Jonah's a God, I mean, sorry. God is a God of love. And let me say that that is one of the most powerful things that I don't even believe we fully comprehend. Just how deep and profound and transformational God's love is. And yet we've got God engaging in an act of judgment, the violence Ninevites. And he's saying, guys, 40 days is coming and I'm going to come against the city in judgment. We don't know what to do with that. I mean, you want to have a, a great party conversation. You don't talk about the judgment and the wrath of God. You'll be standing alone and going home early. All right, this side of God sometimes is like, you know, you got that friend who's great, but sometimes he's just does some weird things. You're like, listen, come along with me to the party. But you know that thing you do, don't do that. And I think we get like that with God and we want to edit him. And we're like, no, God is love, God is love, God is love. And he is more than we could ever imagine. 
But we see verses like this and we just don't know what to do. And, and maybe you're not a Christian here this morning or listening to this. You're like, that's exactly why I'm not a Christian. The, the judgments of God and, and sometimes even the judgments of His people. And even as a Christian, sometimes we look at these passages and we just, let's rather skip over to the loving part again. Let's maybe find somewhere in the New Testament where Jesus loves people. We'll just camp out there. And what I want to help us think about this morning is maybe when we do that, we land up with a less loving God. So I think it's so important that before we jump to some of these knee-jerk conclusions, that we try and think about this and, and just step back and see how this works together. You and I know that the world is messed up. I know we live with this pain. Some of you are living with that pain right now. So why is the world messed up? Well, probably the main reason why the world is so messed up is because there are seven billion messed up human beings on the face of planet Earth. And to greater and lesser degrees, these seven billion human beings are making thousands of decisions, many every single day, many of which are selfish, many of which are full of pride and hubris, many of which land up cumulatively injuring the people around us. Some people are in great power and influence and they bring that same selfishness, that same hubris, that same pride. And sometimes you get an entire nation like the Assyrians whose decisions have led them to a point whereby the decisions they have made are landing up with incredible violence and pain and sorrow. And so imagine there's God up in heaven looking at the news headlines you're reading, looking at the pain that you're living, looking at nations like the Assyrians and imagine, oh, God's a God of love and He's up there in heaven and He's like, oh, you know, my children, Sometimes they just don't get along. Ta ta ta. Oh, shame, man. Wouldn't that make God less loving? You see, the opposite of judgment is not love, it is apathy. So just imagine the scenario with me. You're walking maybe with your family, walking a dog, you're walking through the suburbs, you get to an area and you see a bunch of kids and most of the kids are, in your estimation, eight, nine, 10 years old. And in the middle, you see a little boy, he's four or five years old. And these kids are actually, they're bullying him. They're slapping him around. There's already some blood coming out of his nose. He's frightened. They're taking his money. He's on the ground. And, and, and your heart breaks for that situation. Now imagine, in the name of love, you're like, oh, I can't tell anybody they're wrong. So I'm just gonna walk on by because you know, boys will be boys. What would be the loving thing to do? The loving thing for you to do would be to exercise judgment and make a judgment's call, which these boys are unable to do and override their judgments and take your power. Hopefully you're bigger than a few 10-year-olds Right? Maybe you've got a scary dog on the leash and you use your power and your situation to step into that context. Exercising a judgment, that is the loving thing to do. It's a loving thing to do for the five-year-old. It's the loving thing to do, hopefully for the bullies, hopefully leading them onto a path to realise this is not okay. It's a loving thing to do for the families. It's a loving thing to do for the community. But apathy 
is not love. Doing nothing about injustice and violence is not love. See, judgment is not the opposite of love. It is an expression of love. And so whether you're a Christian or not, I think deep down inside, you know that you desire justice and you desire judgment. But here's the thing, when other people are infringing on our comforts and other people are infringing on our lives and what we think our lives need to look at, we want justice. But the minute the spotlight is on us, no, 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 that's not loving and that's so unfair. Here's a scenario. It's very similar to the scenario played out a couple of weeks ago. But if you want to get onto the R24, you know, you've got to go around Joburg on the N3, you get to the Galulis Interchange. And if you want to get onto the R24, you need to be in the left two lanes. And if you know anything about that intersection, you have to get in there early. There's often a backup of about a kilometer or two of cars that usually move painstakingly slow. And so I, I know you've been in the situations where you've done that dutiful thing. And just after from Biran Avenue, you've got it into those lanes and you're gonna abide your time and take those extra five minutes to do the right thing and go through those lanes. And then you see those cars coming past, coming past. You see those indicators come on and you see them shove their noses in the front. And you're like, that is not fair. Maybe you even stick your backside out of your car a little bit, just like, so they know, like, I object to this. And how good do you feel when you get onto that flyover and you see them stopped on the side of the road by the traffic cops? And you're like, yes. So the one day I was, I forget the exact context, but I was in a rush and I saw this queue and I'm like, I'm not gonna join the queue. I'm gonna look for a gap. Right, and sometimes a gap appears and I just mm, hope no one noticed. But this time there wasn't a gap. There was no slow cars, no trucks. It was bumper to bumper. So I was the one sticking my nose in the front. I'm like, I hope no one notices. And then out in front of me, traffic cop off to the side. And I'm just like, that's so unfair. Like if only you knew I need to get somewhere now. But you're so two-faced. Because when somebody else's decisions infringe on our freedom, we want justice. But when it's on us, we've got every excuse in the book why we should get out scot-free. And so Jonah's trying to show us that we have a God who has a supreme idea of justice, a supreme idea of what is wrong and what is right, who cares deeply about injustice and he acts. And in this particular story, he brings an entire nation to repentance. So let's read what it looks like from verse five onwards. So the Ninevites believed God after hearing the short sermon. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? 
God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And so here we see the picture of the entire nation coming to repentance, including the donkeys and the cows. I don't know why they had to repent. I don't know, they kind of, they made the milk that fed the soldiers that killed people, but who knows? They had to also repent. But we see they believed God and the response was to stop and humble themselves with fasting, just a sign of absolute dependence upon the mercy and grace of God. Putting itchy, uncomfortable sackcloth on as a sign of their seriousness, their willingness to humble themselves in the ashes of their repentance. Now in verse 10, we see here, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, that word in Hebrew for turned is the word shuv. Everyone say shuv. Now shuv is often translated and maybe even in some of your translations as the word repents. And you have heard that. It's all through the New Testament and the prophets where God is calling us to repent, where God is calling us to shuv. Now, you hear in English the word repent and immediately you know, oh, that's one of those Christian words. Even if you're not a Christian, you kind of associate it with religious people. In Hebrew, it's not a religious word, it's just a word. So here's the, the actual way that the word shiv would have been used in daily life. Imagine you're walking through the mall of the south, you're on your way to Woolworths. Have you ever been in a zone or you've been on the phone or chatting to somebody and you're like, oh, 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 oh where am I? I was going to Woolworths. Oh, oh, wait, Woolworths is over there. And so you shiv, you stop. A judgment is rendered. I was going in the wrong direction. And you turn and then you walk in the new direction. Right? That's what it means to repent. But now imagine that image. Imagine you're walking with a friend. Oh, we want to go to Willie's to get something. So you're walking and you get so stuck in the conversation that you land up going in the wrong direction. And then your friend says, hey, hey where are we going? Aren't you supposed to be going to Willie's? Yes, yes, yeah, okay. Well, well, Willie's is that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. But imagine you carried on walking. You'd be like, well, what's going on here? There was a sound truth moment, a, a judgment. You're going in the wrong direction, but yet you're choosing to carry on working, walking. You're choosing not to shove. You're choosing not to repent. And for so many of us, that is a picture of what we do. We're walking in the direction of our own moral judgments. We think we're in control. We think we know what we're doing. We think we are large and in charge. And God renders a judgment in some form or another. You're reading His Word. A friend comes and chats to you. Uh, the Spirit just speaks to you in prayer. And He says, this is the direction you're going. You need to stop and you need to shove. And yet for so many of us, we're like, yeah, whatever, God. I, I know what I'm doing. And we carry on walking without repentance. And one of the things that the Bible tries to help us to understand is, and we see it with the Ninevites, they believed God and they turned. They humbled themselves. They stopped in the ashes of their repentance and they turned and followed Him. And this comes so clearly in the New Testament 
that faith or believing has to be accompanied by repentance. And, and, and the question almost gets thrown out there. If there is no transformation with your belief in God, is the belief genuine? You say you believe God, but at no point do you stop. You carry on with your own moral judgments. You carry on doing the things that seem right in your own eyes. It doesn't matter how many times God speaks to you, there's not a shred of evidence that your life is being changed by Him. Jesus makes it so clear where Jesus says to us in the book of Mark, He says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Now, to help us understand what repentance can look like and actually feel like in real life, to go back to the analogy of walking and turning. I'm walking and I realize, wow, I'm heading in the wrong direction. A judgment is exercised. I stop and I turn and I head in the right direction. Imagine you're on a bicycle. You're on a bicycle. Oh, wow, I've gone down the wrong street. You turn, but suddenly I can't just stop and turn. I've got to make a bit of an arc, right? Imagine you're in a car and you're going down the wrong street. Stop, and now you've got to do a three-point turn or up a driveway or go around the block. Maybe you're in like a big truck. Have you ever seen those trucks try and make a turn in a street and they land up stopping traffic for like 15 minutes? And I, I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but if a ship is traveling out to sea and it wants to turn 180 degrees, it's got an arc of one to 200 kilometers for it to turn around. And so for some of us, we hear God's judgments. God says, this is not okay. Here's the direction you're walking in. Here are the sins that you're engaging in. I'm gonna exercise my voice into your life. And for some of us, there's a few things. Oh, wow. Okay, I stop and it's easy. Maybe God convicts me about my, my speech and certain words that I'm using that are offensive to others. And well, actually, that is quite easy to stop. But then maybe there's some sins in our lives that we expect to change as easily, but maybe takes a bit more prayer, a bit more accountability, a bit more effort. And I don't have time to go into the theology of this, but every time we're repenting, God's power is also at work within us, which is amazing. And then there are some sins in our lives that maybe are, are deeper habitually. Maybe our heart is a bit more connected to those sins. And it's like those trucks that really struggle to turn around. With a lot of perseverance, eventually they do. But maybe we give up far before we've gotten to the point where we have turned because we expected it to be as easy as it was when we were walking. And then maybe some of you have those directions that you've taken in your life and you have heard God speak. You have heard Him exercise a judgment. You have heard Him call you to stop and to shiv to turn around, to repent. Man, and for you, it has been years and years and years like the chip on the open seas. And you're like, when is this gonna come right, Lord? And some of you gave up and the ship went back this way. And I really want to invite every one of us this morning to have the courage to hear the Lord's voice exercising a judgment in our lives. And for us to engage a willingness to participate with Him in this, that we receive His judgments and that we walk with Him.
This is gonna take us far beyond this idea of I'm a Christian, I've prayed a prayer, I've ticked some sort of box. Maybe some of you are told that when you became a Christian, you prayed a prayer of repentance. Guys, what makes you a Christian is not that you prayed a prayer of repentance. What makes you a Christian is you are praying prayers of repentance. And every time God speaks, you are participating with Him in this. And every single one of us are being invited into that. Now, I think there's another thing happening here in the story that helps us understand why some of us find it really struggle to turn. And if we go back to the story of the king, the king, now remember, this is, don't just picture a storybook king. This is the king of one of the most powerful empires ever. He spoke and nations got destroyed. Right, a violent, cruel, powerful man. He had all the power one could ever ask for. The word of the Lord comes to him and what does he do? He gets off his throne. The symbol of his power. The very thing that enables him to do what seems right in his eyes, he gets off and then he takes off his robes. The robes also being a symbol of his authority. Everyone knew as, as you're wearing those robes, you are the king and he takes them off. And he gets alongside the lowest of the low in Assyria and in Nineveh. And he too fasts. And he too wears sackcloth. And he too repents. And so I think one of the reasons why we struggle to turn, why we struggle to repent is because we choose to stay on our thrones. Because let's not kid, it feels good. It feels good to be in charge. It feels good to have that admiration for people to look at us and see the King. These status symbols that we have in our lives that feed our egos, some of them not necessarily wrong, but they hold a place in our lives whereby we find our identity in these symbols. And I know it feels good. And we hear God's voice and we're like, let me rather just sing one more song in church. Let me maybe just give a bit more money and then maybe I'll feel better about my walk with God. But you don't wanna get off the throne. We don't wanna take off those ropes. For some of you, those robes are the hope and the trust you place in your wealth, in your status, in your physical looks, in your health. Again, not all of those are bad things in and of themselves. But when they are our primary identity and our primary reason for not submitting to God in our lives, we need to figure out what it means to get off our thrones. Now, one of the realities, we carry on reading the book of one and two Kings and we see that Nineveh got back on the throne. And there was this brief respite where there was some repentance in the land of Nineveh. But something happened. The king got back on the throne and God's judgments came and the nation, well, the empire of Assyria was brought to an end. But isn't that us? Today you're sitting in church and today you're saying, yes, Lord, amen. I'm getting off my throne today. 
Stephen, I know that what you're saying just rings so true about God's heart. So I choose to get off. And you wake up tomorrow morning on the throne. Not the throne in the bathroom, the other one, sorry. And you're back in charge. And maybe for some of us, it's gonna be a battle every single day to wake up and get off the throne. And to wake up tomorrow morning and to get off the throne. And to wake up the next day and get off the throne. But here's what happened. What happened to the Ninevites when they did turn? What happened to the king when he did turn? Remember, what the message that came to them was a message of God's judgment. What did they experience in their repentance? They experienced compassion. That is where they experienced the kindness of God's grace and mercy. And so as much as sometimes we're made to feel so uncomfortable when God speaks and declares a judgment into our lives and or scandal, maybe He uses somebody in our life to speak that truth into our lives. And that is so uncomfortable. And I think there's so much in us that there's kind of that naughty boy syndrome. I'm in the principal's office and I'm in trouble and I'm scared of getting a smack. And what we discover is that when we respond to God in this way, suddenly in beautiful, fresh and, 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 and nourishing ways, we experience His compassion and His love and His grace. And the reason for that is because there was another king, another king who was sitting on a throne and that throne made the Assyrian throne look like an absolute piece of nonsense. You're sitting on the throne of the universe and he had the robes of ultimate royalty and power around his shoulders. When he spoke, not only do people listen, but creation happens. And that king decided to get off his throne. And Philippians 2 tells us how that king humbled himself by taking on not only your and my human limitations, but by taking on our sin. And the very things that sicken us to our stomach about this world we live in and sicken you to your stomach about your own heart, that king took the ashes of that upon himself. And that king experienced the judgments rightly due all that sin and violence and injustice. But that wasn't the end of the story, right? Because that king went through that. And after experiencing judgment and death, experienced resurrection. And that is the invitation every single one of us are called to. Where we come to the cross, where we hear God's voice of sometimes judgments in our lives and as uncomfortable as it is, we stop, we humble ourselves, we show visible signs of us taking God's voice seriously. We stop, we sit in that for a moment, recognizing the gravity of what God has just said to us. But then we're invited to the cross where we see the very thing that God is judging in our lives has been judged in Jesus. And as we gaze upon the one who knew no sin but became sin, we receive grace, 
compassion, love. And the irony is, it is in that moment that God places a robe on our shoulders, a robe we don't deserve. It is at that moment God says, rise and stand as a son and a daughter, confidence in my kingdom. And then we get back on the throne and we do the same thing. Oh, God was so kind yesterday. Surely he won't be that kind today. And guess what? He is. And the next day, we get back on the throne and we hear God's voice in our lives. We get down in repentance. Surely today I've hit the end of God's kindness. And again, you hear him say, stand, my son, whom I love. And again, we see the sin and the judgments we deserve on Jesus. And so this transaction between God's love and his justice is centered on the cross. Because at the cross, we see God being a just God, punishing the very things you hate about this world in his son. And that's where we see God's love. Instead of punishing us, he bore it himself in order that he, we might experience grace. And so as we wrap up this morning, I wanna invite us, and I'm gonna pray just for a few moments and then we will end to hear God's voice. So please pray with me. Father, would you call to mind right now as we're sitting here, and I know it's hot, I know it's sometimes difficult in the place with many people, and thinking about what's coming next, whatever. Holy Spirit, I pray that you bring to mind your voice, your voice where you've been trying to get our attention. And we, like Jonah, have been ignoring it. Or maybe we've just kind of acknowledged it, but nothing's changed in our lives. And so, Father, what are those areas in our lives you are calling us to hear you, to stop, humble ourselves in repentance? Throw ourselves at your mercy, feeling the full weight of our failures. Just right where you are, in your mind's eye, acknowledge that before him. No one else is gonna hear what you're saying. Now I want to invite you to look at the cross. And I want you to see on Jesus, the very thing you've just mentioned. Maybe you are feeling so guilty right now. Maybe you're feeling crushed by this acknowledgement. Maybe you're feeling so unworthy right now. And I want you to see, maybe even visualize the word. Maybe for some of you, it is literal adultery and you look at Jesus and he who knew no sin became adultery. Maybe it's lying, maybe it's pride, maybe it's anger. 
you, you have that transaction, but see that on Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I pray that as we do that, we would tangibly feel the weight of condemnation fall off our shoulders. As we see that Jesus is the one who bore that and he is the one who experienced the judgments of God. And I pray, Father, that as we move from this place this morning, there'd be a freshness as we have an experience of grace and kindness and compassion as you restore us, as you fill us with your full nature and you empower us to live a transforming life. And Father, I pray that tomorrow we'll do the same thing. Church, I know that this journey can be so difficult and painful. But I wanna ask you to get off the throne and leave the control of this journey to God. So Father, we trust you in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.